And uh, if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Isn't it good to re- remind ourselves that peace with God has been made through the spilt blood of Jesus Christ and the promise that comes with that, that one day every single conceivable conflict will end. And we think about warfare at the moment and it's very much a real reality for so many. A few weeks ago, Lizzie and I had the privilege of joining um, over 100 leaders in Cyprus, leaders from around the world. We gathered together uh, for five days. Um, It was a wonderful privilege to be there, literally leaders from all over the world, including pastors from the Ukraine and pastors from Russia. Brothers, arm in arms, praying for one another, worshipping together. Such a powerful image of what Jesus has done, is doing, can do, and will do. And I am encouraged, by, I was so encouraged by that picture. So as I saw these guys, the Ukrainian pastor shared in front of the whole conference, and he said, literally right now I've got family members who are in bunkers, as, as the shelling carries on. And, uh, and it's so important that we take the time to thank God for those that shed their blood for us. I think of my granddad. I'm sure you've all had people in your mind who, who were in conflicts and in wars and, and, and right now. So, I, I mean, it's, it's such a huge deal. I just feel led just to pray again. Father, just, again, we just pray especially for the conflict in the Ukraine We ask it to come to an end. And Lord, those conflicts and those wars which don't get the airtime in our country that are nevertheless horrible, that you see, we pray, may they come to an end. And we thank you for your promise that you will bring reconciliation to all things. And it's made possible because of the power, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah and thank you for it. Amen. So we've been going carefully through the letter of 1 Corinthians as a church, and um, I think it's fair to say the last few chapters that we've been going through were were interesting, challenging, I think handled really well um, by those that were preaching the last couple of weeks, Steve and and Jonathan, and I'd encourage you to listen to those if you've missed them. Today we're in chapter 8, and having heard... The Apostle Paul addressing matters of sexuality and purity and singleness and marriage and it being very arresting and full of of confrontation of worldly values, you can imagine the the church in Corinth feeling like it needs to come up for a breath. (sighs) We just need you to chill out, please, for the next few chapters, Paul. But he now... He now enters into another issue, another major issue, which is causing significant division in this church. And in fact, he spends the next three chapters dealing with this one. So let's listen to this together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll read the whole chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, about food sacrificed to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. 
Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols then. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him. And we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat. And we are not better off if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, our king, our captain, Our good shepherd, we thank you for all those names that we were declaring earlier on. We thank you that your word is sent to us to reveal Christ and to reveal his goodness and glory and kindness and mercy. And as Christ reveals all these things to us, so we come to know you, our Father. And I pray today, Lord, as we think about this challenge, that you would help us as a people to enjoy the love of God more freely and for it to flow out more liberally in how we relate to one another, that we would be strengthened and united as a church and that as we're strengthened and united together in love, so we would be a witness to the world that is broken of the healing mercies of God. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how many of you woke up this morning And thought to yourself, do you know what today, I just really hope at long last, I'll finally get an answer to the question, can I eat meat sacrificed to idols? (laughs) I'm not sure many people woke up asking that question this morning. So why have we got three chapters on this issue? Should we just skip forward and get to... Chapters 11, 12, 13, where maybe it gets a little more relevant. Well, of course, we know not to handle the word of God like that. And in fact, 
these chapters are written especially for you and for me. Written especially for the church. You think it was addressed to the church in Corinth. Yeah, but, but it's very clear. Paul makes it very clear. All scripture is God-breathed, okay? It's profitable and is written for our benefit. Okay, so what possible benefit is there for us reading a chapter that's talking about animals that have been sacrificed to idols and whether or not we should eat the meat. Well, I can tell you that similar types of issues have cropped up in your life if you're a Christian already many times and are probably rife within our church at the moment where you're thinking and wondering about so-called freedoms and rights and privileges you have. Is it okay for kids to go to Halloween parties? Is it okay for me to go to a beer festival? Is it okay to watch Harry Potter films? Is it okay to go to Royal Ascot and place a few bets? Is it okay to watch 18 films? How many pints am I allowed to drink? Now, if we were, I, I could keep going. If we were to go around the room and, and survey the room here on each of those questions, I can guarantee you there will be a massive mix of opinion on them. Guarantee you. And there will be some in the room, and you'll be like, I just need to know what are the rules. Just tell me, what, what can I do? What am I allowed to do? And there will be some in the room who will go, there are no rules. Just, just enjoy life. You're forgiven, you're saved, you're free. And there will be some in the room who are like, I know all the rules and I'm going to preach them to you and I'm going to convert you to my rules. I wonder which of those three categories you're most like. Because you'll have a bias one way or another. I appreciate I've, I've kind of exaggerated them. In Corinth, this issue was causing massive division to the extent where brother was arguing against brother and there was conflict and there was tension and it was causing division to occur across the church. This is the situation that was occurring. There would be many temples in Corinth and in these temples there would be many different gods that were worshipped whether it's the god of uh, Athena or Apollos or Eros or the various Greek gods that would be worshipped and, and you'd, you'd sacrifice an animal and you'd perform all kinds of rituals and the idea is that this god would then give you some kind of favor. They would represent some power and by sacrificing to them, the idea is that you would then receive some kind of benefit, some kind of favor from them. But this was also a pattern, a way of life. This was a cultural thing. So people would go to the temples, they'd, there'd be an animal sacrifice, and then not all of the animal would be consumed on the altar, uh, and much of it would then be cooked and served up, and people would have a meal. They would be in the temple, often eating their food, having just sacrificed this animal. And we know that many of the people in Corinth were continuing to go to the temples. We know, as we go through the letter, that they were sleeping with temple prostitutes and carrying on, many of them, in patterns of behavior that they were accustomed to before 
they met Jesus and before they became a Christian. And, and the, the argument was, was along these lines, that the theologically strong were insisting that because we know there's only one God, and because we know there's no such thing as idols, and we know there's no such thing as other gods, there's one God, therefore it really doesn't matter if I go to the temple with my mates, have a lovely dinner, and just chill there. And then there's this other group, the weak, who are saying, no, no, you can't do this. This is, this is idolatrous, this is demonic, this is, this is it's going to pollute you, uh, you're, you're going to lose your salvation, you're gonna, God's going to be angry with you, you're going to come under judgment. So this is the conflict that was happening in the church, and as a consequence, they have asked the Apostle Paul to answer the question, which one of us is right? Do you, do you have that person in your life who just loves a good argument? Just loves a good argument. Is that maybe that's you? And you just can't, you, you have to have the final word. And sometimes you get two people who are like that, and you're in this conflict, and you're arguing away. And then someone eventually concedes and says, Well, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Paul doesn't accept that. And he, through three chapters, painstakingly, carefully, addresses the issue and reaches a conclusion, which interestingly is actually, no, you shouldn't eat the, the, you shouldn't carry on going to the temple, you shouldn't eat the idol, idolatrous food. But having reached that conclusion, like every good teacher will tell you, show me you're working out. Don't just give me the answer, I want to know that you've understood the question. So he then carefully makes his case for why he's saying, actually, there's a good reason not to do this. We're just going to look at what he emphasizes here. First, firstly, to know that love matters most. Firstly, to know that love matters most. Secondly, to know that there is only one God. Third, but be careful. But be careful. Then fourthly, and be like Jesus. So that's where we're going um, through this text today. So the, the opening verses, he introduces the theme now about food sacrifices to idols, and then he starts talking about knowledge. Now about knowledge. That's a bit of a tangent, Paul. That's a bit of a, a parenthetical line of argument. You're now taking us down. Says, no, no, no. This is a matter of knowledge. This is people using their knowledge and their knowing, if you like, their theological conviction in order to try and make their point. But what he does is he contrasts knowledge with love. Know that love matters most. Love is the Apostle Paul's, if you like, silver bullet in this argument and in this dispute. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. The issue at stake is this, simply, that those that were arguing on the basis of theology, he's like, what are you doing using theology? What are you doing using the word of God as a weapon to beat your brother with? Don't you realize how crazy that is? What is knowledge? I mean, what is true knowledge, he says? What is true knowledge? This is 
This is what true knowledge is. It's to know God. And to know God is to know love. And on what basis did you come to know God? Did you come to know God because of your superior intelligence and your superior knowledge? Oh, no, no, no. You you came to know God because you were dead in your sins. You were hopelessly lost. And God had mercy on you and saved you and reached out and took hold of you and washed you and cleansed you and forgave you. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We have to understand that ultimately the most valuable knowledge to be had in all the universe is the knowledge of Christ. So the Apostle Paul could say, look, my CV by worldly standards is pretty impressive, he says in Philippians. It's a paraphrase. I was, I was a Pharisee of Pharisee. I, I, I descend from the line of Benjamin. I've got PhDs coming out of my ears. And yet all of that is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, my Lord. In 1 Corinthians 13, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. I am nothing. As, he, as we go through chapters 12, 13, and 14, we find in those chapters, it was spiritual gifts that were actually causing disorder and disunity. Here, it's knowledge. So, so we've got two things, which are good things, which they're using uh, to cause conflict. This is basically, right, imagine this. You say to your friends, come to our church and get healed. You can get healed if you come to our church. Or come to our church and hear amazing preaching and teaching. Just don't expect to be loved. No, we don't do, well, that's not what's on offer. Do you want that kind of church? How did Jesus put it? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you can answer every theological question put to you. By this, you will tell the world that you are my disciples if you're able to heal all the sick. What did he say? He said, by this, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's just look at what he says in John 17. John 17, this is his prayer just before Jesus goes to the cross, his high priestly prayer. He's before his father. I mean, I don't know what I'd be praying if I was about to be crucified. I'm not sure I could get any words out. He prays this in verse 20. I pray not only for these, that is his immediate disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one and the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus' appeal to his Father 
knowing the kind of world that exists is, Lord, please, when it comes to my people, may they be united, may they be one. And it's amazing the issues that can cause division in the church. And often it's, it appears fairly trivial. Do you know the most controversial thing I did when I was pastor of the church in Portsmouth? My most controversial decision was to move the tea and coffee time from the morning to after the service. It caused, it caused massive problems. It did. People left the church. I mean, how? It's amazing the propensity we have for division. It's amazing how easily you and I insist upon having things our way. And how our rights and how our privileges and how our preferences and how our wants can cause all kinds of conflicts, even your theological convictions, even the things you believe about the Bible. Oh, I'd say especially that. Outrageous that they believe this. Now, there are issues, of course, which are unifying things. I'm not, hey, you know me, I love theological truth. I love it. But when you use theology as a stick to beat your brother with, your sister with, we've got, we've got a serious problem. President Roosevelt famously said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It doesn't matter how clever a person may be or how compelling a sermon might be or how excellent an argument might be, if you sense that the heart behind it is uncaring, is unloving, you'll dismiss those words. And so for us as a church, when people come in, and I hope if you're new to us, and if you have been new to us, you've encountered this, is that you come into an atmosphere where the love of God is very tangible. We will do that imperfectly until Jesus returns, until the perfect comes. The sincerity of our message is tested by the love we have for one another. The sincerity of our message is tested by the love we have for each other in the church. So the next thing that Paul does is he does nevertheless insist there is only one God. So verses four to six, he says the following. We know that an idol is nothing. We know that's true. And I know that there are so-called gods in the world. I know there are other gods. But for us, we recognize there is one God, the Father. All things are from him. And we exist for him. And that there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him. And we exist through him. This is one of the most significant verses in the whole Bible for, a, for, for declaring the deity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God. You say, but it says he's Lord. It doesn't say he's God. This is where understanding the, the biblical original languages can be helpful. So the word for God is theos. And the word we have here for Lord is it's the Greek word kyrios. Kyrios is a Greek word which is the um, translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. 
So when Paul says here, look, we know there is only one God and, and there is one Lord. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. What he's doing here is he's not saying that Jesus is somehow not quite God. He's saying Jesus is the God that was revealed to Moses. I am who I am. We heard that. Jay mentioned that earlier on. I am. Who is this one in the burning bush? I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I am the personal God who comes down and who meets you. I am the God who leads my people out of slavery and parts the oceans. I am your God. And Jesus Christ is the I am. He is the Lord. This is one of the most significant verses in the whole Bible attesting to the deity of Jesus Christ. And there is no name under heaven by which you can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. No other name. And the word of God says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. If you call on the name of Jesus, I don't want to presume that in this room everyone's done that. And if you're here in a church and you haven't done that, it's probably because you are actually looking for answers to questions. And the invitation, I'm so chuffed to be able to give you today. I mean, it's amazing to me. I get to invite you through the word of God to call upon the name of Jesus. And I'm not going to embarrass you and ask you to stand up and do that. But I'm going to invite you in your heart to say, Jesus, if you're real, and if indeed you are God, would you save me? What do you need to be saved from? What do you need to be saved from? Well, living life in my own, my own strengths, living life my own way, being my own savior, trusting on my own efforts, from the judgment of God, all of those things. And Jesus saves us from them. Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be said, there is only one God, Jesus Christ. There's no other name by which we can be saved. So this is really important that whilst Paul begins by speaking about God's love, he doesn't then say to those who are theologically strong, you've missed it. He said, no, you are right. There is only one God. There, there is no such thing as other gods. The world comes up with other gods, and you're right by eating the food. You're not, it's not going to alter your spiritual status. You're not somehow not going to be a Christian and somehow going to come under fresh condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The moment we call upon the name of the Lord and believe upon him, our judgment is taken from us. So he, he affirms the theological truth. But he now enters a significant conjunction in the text. However, however, he says in verse 7, however, not everyone has this knowledge. Not everyone has this knowledge. There are those whose conscience or whose convictions are not as strong as your own. Do you really want to tempt your brother, your sister, 
back to a place where their conscience is going to be corrupted and defiled? Be careful. You see, for some, he's saying, the temple was, was, was their, their old way of living, and it massively let them down. Like their life was spent, their hopes were spent, their money was spent. It's a dark place. It's an idolatrous place. Actually, it is a place of, where demons are worshipped. So yes, even though you can eat the food, it's not going to change your spiritual status, and you know that. You could tempt your brother, your sister, to go to that environment and to sit in that place and to feel fearful and afraid and anxious and to, and to be flooded again with the dark memories of how they used to live their life. Do you really want to do that? Do you really want to tempt your, your brother or your sister to do that, to lead them into that place? Have a care for your brother and your sister. Have a care for them. Romans 15 Verse 1, we see Paul saying the same thing. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. This is such an important challenge to us. In my... um, in my preparation this week, I was away for a couple of days uh, praying with other pastors this week and, and leaders from across our family of churches. And I was having conversations with various Bible teachers. And I said, I'm, I'm preaching 1 Corinthians 8 on Sunday. Um, and you know, food sacrifice to idols. Uh, and how, you know, are we free or aren't we free? I said, what's the equivalent, do you think, for us? What are our issues? What, what are the things I should, I should mention? And I spoke to one and then another. And I spoke to John Groves and everything was resolved. <laughs> and yesterday, and, and, and as we were talking around it, we recognized you could talk about this thing, you could talk about this thing, you could talk about this issue. There's going to be certain people in the room for whom this is a, this is a challenge, this is a temptation, this is an idol and then it just, obviously, the reality dawned upon me. It's completely missing the point. The point isn't actually idle food. The point is, do you really love your brother, your sister? Has the love of God so changed your heart that you really care about the lives of those around you? Your knowledge, your gifts, your talents... You can use those things for the benefit of others or for yourself. You can use the things which God's given you. You can actually use them to cause unity or division. You think of some of the most powerful people who've caused some of the most wicked crimes. Often brilliant, talented, capable, gifted And that's the challenge to us is do you recognize, do I recognize, do I see the things God's given me, the blessings God's given me in my life, do I see them as opportunities, as gifts to strengthen, to love my my neighbor, my brother, my sister? To be other-centered. So it's actually such a simple Christian truth but which we can so easily forget. 
because we can come to church today and we can, we can think of all the things which we don't really like very much. And then, if, then that can start to fester in us a kind of pride or anger or bitterness and think, oh, it's too loud this morning. It wasn't loud enough this morning. Actually, I thought, Will, great job this morning. I said, oh, sound was great. But that's my preference. Some, some, some here would have thought it was actually too, too loud. Or, or is it the songs that we sing? What is the thing for you that could cause you to cause disunity with your brother and with your sister? When you come, when we gather together, we all come with a gift to bring, the word of God says. All of us do. When you come, when we gather together as, as God's people, do you come thinking consciously, right, I want to be a blessing today. I want to, I want to bring a gift to someone today. I want to encourage someone today. I want to bless someone today. Sometimes it's so mad in the car with all the kids on the way to church, you're just glad you've survived the journey. Never our issue, is it, darling? I'm just looking at my wife. Never happens to us, of course. Sometimes I know, I recognize there can be all kinds of distractions, but the word of God would say to you, you've got a gift to bring. Come and build one another up. Let's encourage one another. Let's edify one another. Let's come not, not to, to guard fiercely our own preferences, preferences and our own rights, but let, let's think how can we be an encouragement to one another. And I know there are many people who come and to, who do that, who bring that. There are all kinds of idols in our hearts. John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. Just churns them out. Fourthly and finally, let's be like Jesus. Let's be like Jesus. So Paul's challenge here is when you just carry on carelessly doing what you want because you think you can and you're not thinking about your brother or your sister, you're, you're sinning against Christ if you're leading them into temptation, whatever the presenting issue may be. And we should just take a moment to think about the humility of Christ. Philippians 2, famous text. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is humility. That is the example of Christ. One of the ways in which humility will work itself out well and unity will work itself out well in our church is as we 
don't think of us, it's not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less, as C.S. Lewis put it. That's what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. There is a person in this church, and I'm not going to name them, who knows that I've got a dodgy knee. My knee injury is not that bad. This particular individual suffers from chronic pain all the time. But whenever he sees me, he always says, Tim, how's your knee? I've been praying for you. How are you doing? And I try and very quickly turn it onto the subject of how are you doing? He says, no, 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 no. How's your weeping? <laughs> like, he's amazing. He knows who he is. I'm not going to embarrass him. That kind of humility, consideration for others, care for others, even someone who is going through chronic pain, modeling that to me, so challenging. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus didn't assume equality with God as something to be grasped. In any moment, he could have come down from the cross. He had his rights and his privileges. He had all the power. He had all the authority. He had all the freedom. And yet his freedom was restricted in a sense in his humility by his love. His love for you and his love for me. His love for us. I want you to think of the person next to you. I want you to consider the person in front of you and behind you. How different might our church be if we all came today thinking, how can I bless that person? How can I encourage that person? How can I make a difference? What about our kids' teams? I think of people like Tori every week. Every week she's loving our kids and looking after our kids. She could quite easily say, do you know what? I'm going to just stone the meeting today because I've earned my right. And there are so many like that. What an example they are to us of a sense foregoing their rights in order to serve and to love others and to encourage others. If you've got kids in the, in, in the groups today, can I ask you, why don't we really make a point of thanking the kids team? Really thank them. And I'm sure you do, but let's really thank and honor them. People who serve teas and coffees, welcome you on the door, put the chairs out, serve us, deny their own privileges in a sense in order to help us. Let's not be consumers, let's not be thinking about our own privileges. Let's witness to the world the kind of love that saved us in the first place, that Jesus models humble. I want to be like Jesus. So aware of how much, how far I've got to go. And you feel constantly that sense of, oh God. One, one of my, I don't read this book to my kids anymore because they're, they're not it's one of the sad things about them all growing up. There are certain books you used to read all the time which you don't anymore. But there's this, this book I used to read them. Hermie, Hermie the Worm. Has anyone read Hermie the Worm? 
A couple have, okay, not many. Hermes a caterpillar. And Hermes always looking around and seeing these beautiful butterflies and ladybirds and 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 he's and he always and he prays. This Hermes, a clever one, is a worm that prays. And he says, Oh God, look at that butterfly, he's so beautiful, so pretty. And I'm just a green worm. And over and over, God speaks back to Hermie and says, Hermie, I love you just the way you are, and I'm not finished with you yet. And you know how the story ends. Hermie becomes a butterfly. And in creation, God's given us all these kinds of pictures to speak to us about a greater reality which is that he's not finished with you yet or with me yet. And that one day we will be perfect in our unity. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I do feel like a worm. But I do know he's not finished with me yet. And I do know that one day, with my wings unfurled, I will be the beautiful creation that God has in mind. And that's true for you as well. But in the meanwhile, we work on our faults and we enable God to speak to our hearts and we do love one another because there's a world to reach, a world which is in conflict and we have a responsibility to show the world what God is like. Why don't we stand? I'll invite the band to come. Father, we are so profoundly grateful to you for Jesus coming and not grasping onto his power and grasping onto his superior God attributes, but added to himself humanity, Lord Jesus. In no way did you stop being God. And yet, mysteriously and incredibly, you added to yourself humility. You added weakness. You added to yourself flesh. You became like us to reach us, to love us, and to display to the world the the love of God that does condescend and is so full of mercy. And I pray for us as a church here, Lord, would you please, please, please help us to love one another in this miraculous way, to prefer one another, to outdo one another in showing honor, to outdo one another in generosity, to use our gifts and our talents, not for selfish gains, but to encourage and edify and strengthen the body. And Lord, we pray against the things which would cause division, We recognize the evil one loves to divide, but the Spirit of God loves to bring unity and reconciliation. And I pray where there are people even in this room that need to go and and forgive, that they would have the faith to do that today. And I pray where things maybe are festering in hearts today, Lord, just help us just to lay them at your feet. We lift our eyes again to you, our risen King, our champion and our great God. We thank you for who you are.